Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy inspires leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million and beyond by designing world-class strategic plans, but more importantly, keeping them up accountable to actually get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. We are really excited. We've recently launched our book, Lost at CEO. It is available on amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, and Audible as well. We encourage you to go out. It has been rated a number one Amazon bestseller in 12 different categories. So please go out and take a look. Very excited for our first, Bill, first three-time guest on the Medicines Podcast. And this is after 150 episodes. So this is uh, of, of recordings, that is, I should say properly. So Dr. Bill Connolly is a senior contributor to Forbes, a Duke University PhD, and a consultant who connects the dots between economy and business. He's worked in economics and corporate planning at two Fortune 500 companies, and as well as a major bank. His expertise is helping with decisions regarding capital expenditures, inventory levels, expansion to new, new markets, pricing, business models, and financial structure. He has spoken to over 1,300 audiences in five countries and counting. In five countries and 31 states, he also is uh, commonly, you'll see him on Forbes.com. And I appreciate it. You actually did an article on uh, which mentioned us, which I really appreciated, Bill. Uh, and he's also the author of The Flexible Stance, Thriving in a Boom and Bust Economy, as well as Biznomics. You have may have seen him in many different places from CNN, Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine, and USA Today. Bill, it is a pleasure to have you again on the Medicine Podcast. Always great to chat with you, Carl. Well, I love, and you know, and this is why I have you on. This is why you are the first third-time guest, is I love <laughs> talking about the future and economics and what is actually happening. And so I'm very, you know... It's very interesting. Back in July, uh, not too long ago from this recording, July 2023, you predicted there is going to be a recession most likely in the first half of 2024. Why? I think that the Fed's tightening uh, has effects and big effects. They went from short-term interest rates of about zero to like five and a half percent. That's big. What distinguishes me and has uh, in this cycle from many of my uh, colleagues is I look at time lags and I think the time lags this time around are longer. So some people have said, oh, we're going to have a recession. And then they looked at their watch and said, well, hey, we've you know been tightening for 15 minutes. Why don't we have a recession? And uh, my thinking is their time lags and in this particular business cycle, I think the time lags will be longer than they usually. 
It is. If you think about that interest rate climb, it's one of the biggest historically, right? In terms of yeah. the amount of interest rates and the speed of interest rates yeah. that have gone through. Um, but it's 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 flattened a little bit, right? They're they're now they're help me out with the latest, latest. What is the current for are they still projecting to have a few more increases before the end of the year? You know, uh, different people say different things. I think the Fed's going to do one more quarter point move, but what's a quarter point between friends? You know, maybe it's zero, maybe it's two quarter point moves. It's in that ballpark somewhere. I remember way prior to this, you and I actually were, we were in person, matter of fact, with one of our clients and, and, and before the interest started going, you said, this is important to do because if we don't raise these up, fast and have them stay there for a while, we won't fix this inflation problem. That's been been very real and present. Now, for those, I think we've all understood what inflation is from the aspect of our gas is way more expensive, our food is way more expensive, our rent is way more expensive, and our mortgages are more expensive because of interest rates. Why though does, in your opinion, do they have to be so aggressive meaning from some people's perspective to keep that down and, and to uh, prevent the economy from, from growing further. Yeah. The fed has taken, um, well, let, let me back up and say, I was skeptical that the fed would actually get the job done for a long time. And then a little over a year ago, I said, Oh, I think the fed gets it now. And they are taking what they call a risk management perspective. And I think this will feel natural to any business leader. The, the Fed would like to, to have perfect decisions, but they recognize, oh, you know, they may get it wrong. They may be too tight. They may be too loose. And they did an analysis. What is the pain from being too tight too long? And what is the pain from being too loose too long? And they said, if they're too tight, well, maybe we get a recession that, that that was unnecessary, or maybe it's a longer recession than, than was necessary. But if they are too loose, the pain is inflation becomes embedded in people's expectations, people as consumers, employees, and uh, business leaders. And if inflation becomes embedded in expectations, it will take a very, very harsh recession to ever get rid of it. And that's what we went through in the early 1980s. So the Fed said, we hope to get it right, but we're gonna err on the side of caution because uh, erring on the side of easing too soon, not tightening monetary policy enough leads to a really big pain. It is really interesting right now of you think of the from a business right businesses right now, prices are still up. Many of them still haven't raised prices up enough, frankly, to cover yeah. their increased wages and their increased inflationary costs and energy costs are still continuing right. to climb. So this is this reality, right? That they're gonna still continue to increase and there's a tight labor market. There's still a tight labor market overall, yeah. right? It's kind of tightened again. So how, what is it going to take to loosen up? I mean, how, how is, how is that mindset going to change that we're actually willing to drop prices, right? Or at least not increase them as much. Yeah. Some prices are sticky, but others will come down. So we've already seen gasoline, you know, it's not as bad as it was, what was that a year and a half ago? And it 
it goes up and down. Commodity prices, copper is down in case anybody uses, you know, buys copper directly. But um, services that involve labor typically don't come down in price very much. Uh, airline fares you will see come down, but of course there's a lot of fuel in that. And labor costs don't go down. The only case where labor costs come down is if people are on commission or they get bonuses that can be trimmed back. But um, the companies that gave large pay raises in 2021 just to keep their people and get other folks, they're not going to cut those wages. You just can't do that. The psychological impact is is colossal. So um, some of the costs are going to go up, uh, continue edging up a little bit. Others will go down. And unfortunately, for most businesses, their biggest cost is often labor, which is not going to come down. What you can hope is that you can uh, uh, have that gain be kind of low, you know, a percent or two, and then uh, make up for that with productivity or uh, sales growth. So what are you seeing, going a little bit further in the labor market, at least what I'm observing, is there's a few trends that have really changed in the past couple of years. Let's go yeah. from macro, stand, you know, international uh, economics. You have a significant push away from China in terms of manufacturing, right? So um, one big beneficiary is, is Mexico, which I believe is most recently is now our number one importer again. You know, it's been a long time. I think that's been the case. Um, two, you have India growing substantially, right? You know, a lot of uh, concerns that is they're over Chinese manufacturing and tariffs and things of that nature moving over there. And then you have also to India and the Philippines, you have a movement of, if you may, um, white collar jobs, right? Uh, uh, that are moving over to there as well. So it, in, in a weird way, it seems like whenever there's a little bit of labor flexibility, it goes somewhere or it gets automated, right? Yeah. So one of the key areas where people presume there's a recession or not is by high unemployment. So when you're when you're forecasting this usually GDP two consecutive quarters, right, of a decline, are you forecasting a significant change in unemployment during that period of time? I think that unemployment will go up. Uh, and the tight labor market is one of like five reasons why I have the time lags as long uh, between Fed tightening and recession, people have been laid off, and uh, there have been, there have been people who drive to work every day, passing business after business with help wanted signs in the window, and then the person gets laid off. So what does he or she do? Reverses course, heads home, and says, "Oh, I'll drop off an application here. I'll apply there." And as a result, despite the layoffs we have increased total employment in the U.S. economy every month, uh, you know, for the last couple of years. Now, that won't last forever, but it's happening right now. The okay, recession, so you, you... and let, let me add, if we get the recession that I'm predicting, then hiring becomes a little bit easier. Uh, labor retention becomes easier, but it'll be a temporary respite. Um, and the demographics just say this whole decade is going to be pretty, pretty tough for people trying to hire. Mm. Okay. 
So, so that hiring process will still be a challenge in probably specific areas, right? Uh, yeah. Are we seeing that in all sides of the market, or there are certain areas where there's well, there are always some and others not. There are always some areas that are tighter, and some areas are looser. But if you look at um, census to census, and I've tracked this data since 1850 uh, on the working age population. Uh, I looked at the growth of the working age population decade, decade after decade, and the decade we're in, 2020 to 2030, will have the lowest growth of the working age population since the Civil War. Wow. The lowest growth of the working age population since the Civil War. But a lot of today's leaders learned about management in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and those four decades had substantially higher growth of the working age population, and also women were changing from uh, 33% choosing to work to 60% choosing to work. So it was, we were flush with job applicants from 1970 through 2010. And you know anybody who is one of those people who learned about management between 1970 and 2010, your attitudes are wrong, you know, because you learned in an era when you could be rude to an employee and the employee did not dare to quit. You could be assured that there are seven people waiting for a job if there's a job opening. Today, it is, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough road to be an employer. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And things have, have, certainly changed a lot. And, and it was, I think it was a really interesting period during looking back to that COVID period, right? When everything shut down and, right. and there was stimulus put into companies, the retention credits, right? Specifically to maintain staff on. And then you had this really interesting boomerang effect of where things came, started to open up again, but then these employees left, right? That they had did everything they could keep because they were getting paid significantly more to go somewhere else. In a weird way, I feel like the trust between companies and employees has been one of the worst I've seen in a long time. And you can see this by some of the strikes that have been taking place or at least been adverted. Um, does, does that have an impact on any of this into the labor market and where that's heading? Or is that just the challenges that management is going to have face when it comes to hiring and retaining employees? Yeah, I think it's one of the challenges. Uh, you know, there have been layoffs for years, and uh, many people um, idealized the 1950s as a wonderful time for workers. But uh, uh, you know, th there were massive strikes, there were layoffs, and of course, it was a better time for workers if you were uh, a white male than you know a, a victim of discrimination. Uh, yeah, I was talking to a farmer last week, and this guy runs a big operation in Iowa, and uh, I think he's got about a dozen employees. And he's he said, "What's a guy like me to do? It's hard to to find good people, hard to retain good people. You know, what's your what's your your strategy?" And I said, "Well, number one, and and this applies to everybody. I gave the the message to some bankers recently as well. Uh, number one is you need more output per person, not by berating them, whipping them to work harder, but by giving them better tools, better training, better management. So productivity is number one. 
And then job retention, um, employee retention has to be number two. And that comes from, um, you know, people don't quit companies, they quit bosses. You've probably heard that. So if you've got a bunch of first level supervisors, you need to de-jerkify those folks. Uh, because uh, if you've got a manager who's a jerk, the employees will leave. And uh, so better training of first level managers is probably the best uh, step there. And then if you have retention, right, the third element is easier and that's recruitment. So productivity, retention, recruitment are the priorities that I would give for anybody having trouble retaining and hiring good, good talent. Yeah, I think there's a really good, good inputs. Okay. I want to go to housing just for a minute and because sure. it's such an interesting topic and, and I, I, I'm hoping you can confirm something that I read recently or perhaps give me a different view behind it. I think a lot of people thought that home prices would finally go down when interest rates went up. Yeah, right. But something else has happened, um, which is people are unwilling to sell because they don't want to go to a higher mortgage rate. Therefore the supply right. is completely constricted right now because there's literally way less homes for sale unless it's a new home. And then there's a frenzy over new homes. seems like, is, is this all true? And, and how long is that going to last? Uh, yeah, it's true. And, uh, you know, I visualize a, a family who would like, who can afford to upgrade their house. They'd like maybe another bedroom and bath or maybe uh, nicer countertops or um, a better neighborhood. And they look at their budget and they can afford to spend more. But if they go from a 3% mortgage to a 7% mortgage, that's going to use up their budget for a better house and they won't have a better house. So I think that uh, home remodeling is big as well as things like, hey, let's put new blinds in, let's freshen it up. Uh, but that means that the first time home buyer, you know, like a couple in their early 30s, they finally have the finances set to buy their house. They're not seeing much on the market. So they're buying new and the um, developers are coming down in price. Not that they're cutting prices, but they're building more of a starter home. And this is going to vary a lot based on your your geography. You know, if you're living in, in um, uh, a, a really nice neighborhood in Palo Alto, okay, you're not going to find a starter home. Uh, but in uh, many areas, they're saying, okay, let's let's have our new construction be a little simpler, a little smaller, maybe a little tighter together, so that we can bring the price price point down for the first time. And that I don't think will last forever, but it's one of the, the factors that's delaying the onset of the recession. Thank you. Thanks for talking about that. And I think that has been a confusing right piece behind right. like initially, oh, it's going to go up and it goes down, but then there's a whole different constriction, right? That's there as a result of uh, people don't want to leave. They want to leave that 3% mortgage price that they have, right. you know, to go to something that's seven. And so that's a, Really interesting challenge. Let, let's go to that. Let, let's look ahead. A recession coming in 24, right? Let's yeah. make the assumption that recession comes in 24. You have an election in 24, um, but you still have some level of uh, inflation a bit that's out there. Right. Is the, is the Fed going to have pressure to lower interest rates going into an election? They will. 
there'll be some folks trying to pressure them. Politicians always want lower interest rates, you know, whether we need lower interest rates or not. And there will probably be people, um, there might be some people within the Fed who uh, know which candidate would be best for America and they might want to shade things a little bit. Uh, but I don't think that that's going to be the uh, effect. Uh, a number of us economists have looked at what drives the vote in terms of economic variables. And there have been plenty of times when the Fed has tightened before an election. So uh, if that's what, and, and the current makeup, the decision makers, I believe if they think it's right, the right thing to do to tighten, I think they'll do it regardless of the political consequences. And I give them um, high marks for that. Uh, but the thing that most impacts the vote is the performance of the economy in the four quarters leading up to the election. So from like, from the end of 2023 through the way things stand on election day is what folks are looking at. Uh, you know, a president is in office for four years. People don't look at four-year track records. They just look at what has changed in the last 12 months. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I think it's going to look grim um, because, not only, you know, I have the recession beginning in early 2024, but then lasting six to eight months. So I think by election day, uh, maybe we have started up, but it won't be obvious to, to very many people. So I think that's going to be tough um, for for re-election of the president. Uh, I'm not making a political forecast because um, it's not just the economy. There are things like uh, the credibility of the opponent that will get involved in the whole um, election cycle. Yes, we'll stay away from that today, <laughs> uh, that whole discussion. But yeah, super fascinating in terms of 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 the the impact of the economy. But should often when there is weakness, there will be a point that at some point, there'll typically be a loosening of interest rates. Yeah, right. Right. So when when would you, excluding election, when, when, would, when are you projecting interest rates yeah. to start coming down a bit? Right. Uh, well, the, well, the Fed conceptually could either push interest rates really high when they think they've done their work reverse course, but I believe that they're going to um, be finished soon, but then they will keep interest rates at about the current level for 12 months. And as I run through some uh, equations that sort of relate um, monetary policy to inflation, once they do, you know, I think another quarter point, but, but you know, whatever, uh, once they get to their, their, their peak, they let it hold strong for a high for about 12 months. At that point, I think they will say, okay, we now have clear signs of deceleration. We can start easing short-term interest rates. And the long-term interest rates, like mortgages or 10-year um, treasury bonds, they will move in anticipation of what the Fed's doing. And that, like the 10-year uh, Treasury bond has been gyrating up and down based upon uh, this week they think the Fed's going to ease and next week they think the Fed won't ease. But once the markets become convinced that the Fed's next move is down, then I think long-term interest rates will go down, but 10-year Treasuries and 30-year mortgages. So that could be 
end of 24, potentially kind of looking ahead to where that, that yeah. may be, may or may not be true in terms of interest rate changes. I think the, I think the fed will hold interest rates high through most of 2024 and maybe in the fourth quarter start cutting, but the, the bondos, uh, will figure this out in the middle of 2024 and long-term interest rates will start coming down. Got it. Got it. But, but th they're not going back to where they were two years ago. Uh, okay. So you still think they'll st maintain some level much higher, like the, the, the old really cheap interest rates that had been there for quite a long period of time, you expect to have a new equal equilibrium then. We're, we're going to come back, I think, to a, an era kind of like before the pandemic. You know, we had three or four percent short term interest rates and then we went to zero. Yeah, I think the Fed will cut into the neighborhood of three to four percent. So it, it's not. In fact, I don't know that you will you or I will ever see interest rates as low as they were in 2020 after the pandemic. Wow. Interesting. That's a. That's a... OK, and, we can't and you're and you're a young, healthy guy, and I still don't think you're going to see interest rates. That wow. Way. No, I, 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 I that is one of those ones. I'm super curious in what you just said there. Um, that's interesting. I it's super interested by that. One, one of the things that I, I wonder sometimes is because the interest rate, I know it doesn't appear like the Fed cares about deficits, uh, the way how they continue to approve things and, and don't cut spending. Yeah. However, um, a high interest rates make it even worse, right? The cost yeah. of treasuries are, are higher as a result. And so that's why I sometimes wonder if they'll go down for the purpose of treasury, ironically, right? Yeah. You know, but I don't know if they will go there. That's a formula for inflation. Yeah. Uh, and whenever the, the central bank, the Fed or Bank of England or whatever, uh, says we need to keep interest rates low to help the treasury borrow, that is a path to inflation. You know, you can go to Zimbabwe and uh, see it play out. <laughs> okay, we cannot end this podcast without talking with the biggest thing, right? That's been on most people's mind, which is ChatGBT, Generate AI, all the other tools that are now, right, which, which the difference here is, right? It's available to the public, yeah. right? Yeah. You and I can now, I mean, I think everybody, if they have not been completely underneath a shell, are aware yeah. of ChatGBT and and how the impact, once again, of these tools are going to have. So, what are going to be the economic impacts of this? Yeah, and I have a series of articles on that that's still in process, but I've written four already. Uh, and if you just Google my name and Connerly and AI and Forbes, you'll 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 find them. I think that uh, in terms of the economic impacts, uh, it's going to be positive for the economy as a whole. Uh, 200 years ago, about 80% of the working people in America worked on farms. And that is below 2% now. Wow. And um, you double check my arithmetic, 80% minus 2% is 78%, plus or minus a little bit. We do not have 78% unemployment, even though, you know, 78% of the, the population moved off. So we're going to see uh, benefits to consumers, lower costs getting passed on to consumers and consumers spending their money somewhere else. Uh, there will be job losses in most cases. Every now and then, productivity improvement 
uh, increases employment. And uh, Henry Ford in the auto industry is a good example. Uh, Henry Ford was able to cut the price of his Model T significantly. Competitors did the same thing and employment in that industry blossomed. So there'll be a couple of niches that really benefit from uh, AI in productivity and they will hire more people just because so many folks are gonna buy their, their, their products. But in most of the cases, we won't need as many people. Uh, where we, what we will do is we'll start spending uh, our savings in the sectors that have very little AI improvement in productivity. So we're going to, you know, go to a job site and look at a carpenter, look at a plumber, look at an electrician, look at uh, somebody uh, doing logging or manufacturing. Those are the sectors that are going to be least affected. Also, bars and restaurants, least affected, uh, which leads you to think, oh, maybe what I ought to tell my kids to do is go into carpentry. Um, and, you know, we in America have been telling kids to go to college and don't go into the trades, don't go into manufacturing, no, you know, stupid advice. Uh, but it's going to be particularly stupid if people follow it. The, the areas with the um, biggest in, job losses will be things like finance, insurance, and real estate, which is a lot about pushing numbers around and marketing and sales also will cut back because that's pushing words around. And AI is really good with, with numbers, words, and images, but it's not so good if you want to remodel the bathroom on an old house and the contractor says, well, I don't know what I'll find out when I pull that wall out. I can't give you a, a firm number. And the AI doesn't know either. So, you know, overall we're gonna be fine, but there's certainly going to be some individuals who have trouble making the transition. For sure, yeah, I think it's gonna be super interesting, the transition. Uh, it, it's interesting you talk about the trades. Uh, is to travel to Australia for a amount. And, and I was told that, and once again, please us through, I didn't fact check this data, but it's plumbers are plumbers there are, are making 150 to $300,000 there yeah. uh, because it's such scarcity. And, and here are these trades that have been perhaps not look, haven't been gravitated towards, right. By, by yeah. the, uh, by younger people these days. Yeah. This is perhaps one of your best places to go to over the next 20 years is, is the trades, right? And having these uh, skills, right? That that there's fewer and fewer people going into it and there's such scarcity. Uh, there's always going to be a need to build, design things, make things, yeah. fix things. Um, and so I think, and, and yeah. AI right now isn't going to solve that. You still got to turn, still got to right. turn a wrench, right? To, to, yeah. right. <laughs> right. Yeah. to be open or closed. Yeah. And what I recommend to people going into the trades is... Um, eventually you want to be the guy with the clipboard yes, because yes. you don't want to be 50 years old and have to schlep a bunch of pipe um, or, or, you know, cable around. Um, but let me say another word about AI in business. Um, a survey was done that I quoted on in one of my articles that something like 80% of the companies had, were working on or had an AI policy for the company. And I asked uh, the guy about it and he says, yeah, well, most of the policies are do not use, um, but they're starting to figure out uh, that uh, 
companies need to experiment. And I'm not, I, I, won't, I shouldn't even say a company, people need to experiment. Anybody doing a job needs to try it, but with two provisos. Number one, it makes stuff up. The AI makes up some, some stuff. They call it hallucinations, but just assert that facts that are not true. And then um, if you just go into one of the AIs like ChatGPT and dump a bunch of data into it as, to ask a question, uh, then the, the AI company owns the data. And so uh, you have to be cautious with proprietary data, sensitive data. But with those uh, caveats, uh, I, I think people need to be experimenting and just figuring out where can this help us. And one of the things that's really wonderful is the um, the modern uh, versions of AI that large language models, they can be fine-tuned for your particular industry or your particular business. And there's a company called uh, auditoria.ai that's fine-tuned it for the accounts receivable, accounts payable function and on particular companies. So it really reduces the need for clerical workers there. And then the other thing I really like about it is there are apps being developed. So if you wanted to listen to a lecture and then get a summary of the speaker's key points, you could record it, you could send the recording to get it transcribed, you could send the transcription to the AI to get a summary. And now there's one app that rolls those three steps in. And there are hundreds of companies working on, hey, here's a particular chain of events that's that would make life easier for somebody. Let's roll it into one particular app. And, and that's going to blossom and it's going to be a great tool. Yeah, we were we ourselves were developing a course how to apply chat GBT to developing a three-year strategic plan. And, oh, and wonderful. So, yeah. And so I think those specific applications, those who can figure out to get away from the noise, but how to actually create something out of it, you know, creating the prompts to make your life easier as opposed to making it more complex. And I think that's where the value of these tools are going to have something as opposed to just I want to write my resume a little bit quicker or faster. Don't get me wrong. There's some value behind that, right? You can do things way faster through using the tool for those areas. But when you start getting into these more complex areas, that's where I see some real value for that organizations and companies can use and to continue to be relevant, right? Yeah. You know, going through it. I, I My concern is those who don't adopt it, what are they going to be missing? And I don't think they even know what they're missing right now because of fear or just they're waiting. And and we're we're working on being in the forefront of this rather than, being a laggard and being passed by by other tools that are out there. Now, Bill, um, as we got a few minutes left, I, we of course have to talk to what everyone everyone thinks about, which is the stock market. But let me start with for a moment. Uh, we have AI, which I would say has been a, one of the key reasons why the stock market's higher. The, the, some of the seven companies that uh, that are leading the reason why the Dow and the S and P five hundred because they're so large and the Nasdaq, like. Microsoft and Google and, uh, you know, the, these NVIDIA, you know, is, is yeah. now everybody knows what NVIDIA is and they didn't know it for years. So who, right. who is this company? Um, they're, they're driving, they have been driving the stock market for the past six months in terms of a uh, gain. Yeah. Typically you run into a recession. So you have these conflicting factors. AI is only going to grow. And then, and then you have the conflicting on the other side where you have this recession um, expected to happen. 
Usually the stock market goes down going into recession, not always, but usually. What do you foresee happening as a result of an actual real recession taking place? Yeah, the stock market typically is a leading indicator. It goes down in anticipation of the recession. That's not happening. And that's one of the factors leading some people to say maybe Bill Connerly is wrong and we're not going into recession. Um, I don't forecast, I don't every now I every now and then I glance at the stock market, but I'm not trying to to make forecasts. Um uh, but it wouldn't surprise me to see it drop. But also, it wouldn't surprise me if 10 years from now, people who sold are very disappointed that they didn't stay in fully invested. I stay fully invested, regardless of my economic Yes. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that. There's a difference between time in the market and being a long-term investor. And, and, uh, and, and so I just, it is interesting to have how those, those, how that impacts mood, right? I had a CFO who once told me, um, CFO was CFO is like passed down, but I thought it was great. It was a fair amount of wisdom. They said that company morale is 95% based on the stock price. Interesting. You know, it was an interesting perspective, right? Because when our, our 401ks are down, we don't spend as much. Yeah. You know, but when they go up a little bit more, we're like, oh, we have money and we could go on a vacation or, you know, things of that, that, that nature. And that, that wealth effect or lack of wealth effect, I think does have an impact sometimes on the economy as well. That's where I think the, the it is all connected, right, once again. Yeah, and every executive who gets stock options has a spreadsheet <laughs> showing net worth as a function of the current stock price. And uh, yeah, the, yeah, everybody, everybody knows, everybody knows. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Bill, um, we got one more minute. Anything else that we didn't mention today that you you would suggest for people looking in a little bit deeper as we head into the the, uh, the fourth quarter of 2023? Well, I was expecting you to ask for a book recommendation. Oh, of course. Yes. May, well, I, may I do that? Yes, of course. Go ahead. This is let's a book called Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock and uh, Dan Gardner. And it's not so much, it'll be useful to anybody who has to do sales forecast, expense forecast, but it's not about the statistical methods. It's about an attitude as much as anything uh, and the people who do best. And it's a process I used in updating my economic forecast recently, which is before you look at the news, before you look at the latest data, say, what is the normal process? What's the typical process? What's the average impact? And it could be your your long run sales trend or the connection between your expenses and the consumer price index, whatever. And begin with that. And then once you say, hey, if this is a typical cycle, this is what we'll see. Then you start looking at the news and saying, oh, we need to nudge this up. We need to nudge that down, uh, increase the time lag or shorten the time lag. But I gained a lot from reading this book, and I've been forecasting for a long time, know all the statistical techniques, but that insight to start with a base idea of what usually happens and then do adjustments has been very, very good for me. Thank you. And yes, I do typically ask that. So thank you so much for saying that. And once again, if Bill, people want to get connected and learn more about with you. And I know I regularly get your newsletter on a monthly basis. What are some ways that people could find out and learn more? 
Yeah, uh, Bill Connerly, uh, ConnerlyConsulting.com. And Google's artificial intelligence is so good, you can misspell my name and they will figure out Bill Connerly. Uh, you can throw in economist, otherwise the planning director in Manatee County is going to uh, hear, hear from you. Um, and uh, I do have a monthly newsletter. You can find it on my website, the Biznomics newsletter. Happy to share it with any of your viewers. It's a once a month, 60 second update and graphical. Yeah, it's actually one of the ones I, I consistently read. Um, and I love, I love going through it, seeing the trends and the data and your, your uh, commentary on, it. I think you do a wonderful job on that. Bill, thank you so much for being on the marriage says podcast for the third time. Thanks a lot, Carl. I'm hoping once again, we get, get you in again. And I'm going to do a shout out, which I meant to do earlier. And perhaps I'm going to do another good from there. This is talking about business. One of uh, my sister-in-law, Angie Coffin, Heine, um, who has a business called Frock in Portland. They had their 20th year celebration, having a record year. Uh, they're crushing it. I just want to tell you, Angie, we're so proud of you and great job. We always like to celebrate businesses that are getting it done and, and also an accomplishment for being 20 years in. That is no small accomplishment. Once again, we're just, as we always like to say to all of our guests, and we hope you appreciate Bill, please go out and continue to give us ratings. That's how we continue to grow as we're on our track to try and become one of the top 100 bot, uh, business podcasts in the US. We're heading in that direction. And finally, uh, we actually like to say, wishing you the very best and measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.